1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude.
3: You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.
2: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
4: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it on! Every rival, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release. Presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
5: Hey everybody! Hey! I'm Eli. I'm Diana. And we are back here with another exciting episode of Ridiculous Romance. Welcome to the show. Uh, If you're new, welcome. We're getting new listeners all the time, and we love you so much. You
6: look great today, by the way.
5: Yeah, hell yeah. Maybe you heard about us from a recent episode of The Daily Zeitgeist.
6: Ooh, that'd be cool.
5: Yeah, uh, I was fortunate enough to guest star last week Mm -hmm. on their show, and Diana did just yesterday, as of the air date for this episode. Mm
6: -hmm. Yeah, it was really fun. I had a great time talking to them.
5: Yes, Jack and Miles are awesome.
6: Yeah, if you don't listen to The Daily Zeitgeist, it's a good way to get some... Get some comedic, uh, comedic take on the news.
5: It is, you know, I really prefer it to just like the Twitter scroll in the morning, where I'm like, "What's yeah. trending? Oh, horrible, mm-hmm. terrible, not funny. Uh, oh, a celebrity name. Oh, god, why is this celebrity trending? Oh, <laughs> phew, it's just their birthday. <laughs>
6: know, right? You know that
5: kind of thing. It's yeah. good stuff. Yeah, it's good, it's good stuff. Time. Go check out our episodes if you haven't, and if you have heard them, and that's why you're here, then we're so happy to have you. Yeah, and of course our returning listeners as well are. The nearest and dearest to our hearts.
6: Oh, my God. Yeah. Love you. You look great today as well.
5: Hell, yes. Uh, What what have we been up to? We, we haven't checked in lately. I guess not. Yeah. But we, we started watching Why the Last Man.
6: Yeah. Which
5: is one of my favorite comics mm-hmm. from back in the day. 2002, mm-hmm. I think it came out. And I love it.
6: It's a, it's a good time right now for people who liked comic books in 2002, I have to say. Because <laughs> Watchmen came out was amazing.
5: Yeah, the show. And like,
6: yeah. Sandman's about to come out. Oh my god. And it looks really cool. Yeah. I hope it's good.
5: Yeah, fingers crossed.
6: And yeah, we got Why the Last Man. Preacher was pretty good, too. I know we kind of fell off there. Yeah, a we, didn't, we of seasons, didn't finish Preacher. But, but, but that first season was pretty dope. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. I was just like, that's the thinking about all these things that we read <laughs> swapped Graphic yeah. novels amongst all our friends <laughs> to get through all of them because we we're broke.
5: <laughs> right.
6: And now they're all TV shows.
5: But anyway, all that aside, Ashley Romans, who plays Agent 355, is incredible. Uh, in five episodes, I'm just like... So good. This is so good. A, a lot of the
6: acting has been really impressive. Yeah.
5: Diane Lane. Oh.
6: Yeah. Legend. Diane Lane.
5: Legendary Diane, Diane Lane.
6: Lane, who looks incredible, by the way. I oh, forget like, it. Like, her skin is so smooth. Yeah. I'm just like, what are what moisturizer? What, <laughs> what is it? Just tell me what it is.
5: Uh, she's just got that Lane look.
6: She's got that Lane look.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Diane Lane. Sadly, no. Uh, we're here with a brand new episode today. But first, I think we got to check inside this deep little mailbag here.
6: Yeah. Because it looks
5: like we've got time for a mail call. <laughs>
6: awesome. We've got a review from a user called Little Pork Bao on Apple Podcasts that we wanted to share. They said, I was skeptical at first, but the first episode I listened to about Maha Wajir Longkorn was well done. And as a Thai person, knowing what I believe to just assume that the hosts are not Thai, did a pretty good job at <laughs> pronunciations. Only constructive criticism is episodes run a little too long. Great concept, though. Kudos to the creators. Thank you, little pork bag. Thank you so
5: much. Uh, that's
6: so great to hear,
5: really. Uh, that's the thing. I, we don't want to just re- read every review that no. blowing and smoke up our ass. but <laughs> Or the
6: mean ones, to uh, be right. honest, because they hurt my feelings.
5: <laughs> but correct, we are not Thai.
6: <laughs> <laughs> we are not Thai. And
5: so, but that did mean a lot to us um, that we got those pronunciations right, because we definitely spent some time on YouTube trying to make sure yes. that we got them all right, because you don't want to, you, you know... Put I mean, some damn work into it, and people. I'm very
6: glad we did because yeah. I was like really pronouncing it phonetically a lot of the names. And yeah, I was very off, you know, yeah. and I was like, oh, I really thought that this would be a lot closer to the truth, but it, I was wrong.
5: Yeah.
6: <laughs> so I'm very Definitely. glad we checked that. Um, and I'm glad
5: that it worked out. so yeah okay. and and you know, I sometimes I think these episodes run a little long too. <laughs> I mean, as the as one of the researchers, one of the speakers and the editor, uh, yeah, sure, these episodes sure. run a little long sometimes. <laughs>
3: you
6: know, we just get too into it. That's how it, it is. We you love know. finding out about the story, so we get real into the research, and then when we're telling the story, we get real into it. Yep. So, yeah, some of them are a little long. It's fair. It's a fair, constructive criticism, and but, very nicely said.
5: Trust me, they're not as long as what we recorded. Yeah.
6: <laughs> That's very gets true. cut out. <laughs> very true. Very true.
5: I think we got time for another little uh, reach down into the mailbag here. Yeah. And yeah, here's one at Emma Lennon 3 on Twitter. She commented on our post about the Jackie Robinson episode. Jackie oh. and Rachel Robinson, we did so earlier. So good. Love that episode. Uh that I mentioned Branch Ricky sounded like a Kevin Kline character. Kevin,
0: Kevin Kline, Kline alert. alert! Hey!
5: And uh cuz Kevin Kline <laughs> can play anything and it just sounded uh, yeah. like a part he'd play in the movie. Well, actually in the movie 42, that starred Chadwick Boseman, may he rest in peace, yes. as Jackie Robinson, that character Branch Ricky, was played by Harrison Ford. Everybody's favorite go. curmudgeon.
6: <laughs> well, there you go.
5: Uh, yeah, totally. I could see Branch Ricky being played by Harrison Ford. Absolutely. Um, Just the
6: right kind of grump. Yeah. For Brand Tricky. Yeah. To be like, you know what? I'm going to just do whatever I want to do and y'all can <laughs> fall in line. <laughs> I, I see it. I said we need to watch that movie because I love Yeah, Chadwick we haven't watched Boseman. it
5: yet, but yeah, really want yeah, to. We,
6: we are a house that loves Chadwick Boseman. So of course. That's a good one. So yeah, thank you, Emma Lennon 3, for telling us to watch that movie because I definitely do want to see it.
5: Yeah. So we're here today to talk about the famous, the legendary, the household name, We all know and love (laughs) Helen Keller and her lover, Peter Fagan, Mm
3: -hmm. who you
5: probably don't know by name. I sure didn't.
6: (laughs) So, yeah, Helen Keller was only 19 months old when she got so sick that she became deaf and blind. And for much of her childhood, she could only communicate with her family with a variety of home signs and gestures until a young teacher named Ann Sullivan arrived and taught Helen ways to communicate, opening up her world. But many of us only know about Helen's childhood. Very few people know how she spent the rest of her life or what she used her hard-won communication skills for. (sighs) Helen was a prominent activist. She was a socialist. She wrote several books and articles. She did lecture tours to advance her various causes. And she fell in love, too. So let's learn about the real Helen Keller and her star-crossed lover, Peter Fagan.
5: I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah.
6: Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all, an abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance.
5: A production of iHeartRadio.
6: Helen was born in Tuscumbia, Alabama in 1880. When she was 19 months old, she was stricken with what her doctors called an acute congestion of the stomach and brain. Oh. So today they're kind of like, could be meningitis, rubella, scarlet fever, something else. Right. <laughs> you know, they're trying right. to figure out what it might have been. But At
5: the time, they were just like, there's demons in your skin. You know, something <laughs> like that classic 1880s <laughs> medicinal, <laughs> medicinal practice.
6: Like, I guess I'll uh, bleed you out and then give you some cocaine. (laughs) See if anything changes. But whatever it was, it did leave the the previously perfectly healthy and precocious baby, uh, both blind and deaf. And as Helen described it in her autobiography, she, quote, lived at sea in a dense fog.
5: Boy, that is evocative. Right? I know it, like... Just those words, I feel like I know exactly what she means as well as I can. Yeah. You know?
6: Yeah. Yeah. She's good at that.
5: Yeah. Uh,
6: Surprise. Spoiler alert. She's a good writer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The writer is a good writer. Uh, Helen and her family both kind of described her as being sort of feral in her childhood. Uh Like, she'd kind of wander around. She'd grab food off of their plates and, like, eat with her hands. And she would scream. She would slap their faces. She, quote, cried for no reason, which I was
3: like,
6: I think you have a a great reason to cry. Any
5: (laughs) child has a good reason to cry. First of all, any child has a good reason to cry. And if any child has a good reason to cry, (laughs) I feel like it's Helen Keller who could not see or hear anything or communicate what she needed.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, so something, you know, she was missing something she needed and she wasn't getting something she needed. And so she was crying for a great reason. Yes. (laughs) But I guess to them, it appeared to be for no reason at all.
5: I don't know. She just started crying out of nowhere again.
6: We were busy with other things.
5: You'd think if she wanted something, she'd let us know. (laughs) Come on.
6: Come on now. It's not like she had no communication at all. Kind of, As I mentioned, she did have some home signs, which are basically signs that are understood by her immediate family. But they're not like a formalized language, You Mm, know, like mm -hmm. they're very personal. Yeah. Yeah. So she had about 60 home signs that that everyone in the house understood. Mm -hmm. Um, She could tell which family member was which based on the vibrations of their footsteps. So she had kind of an idea like who's in the room and stuff. I mean, you know, she's she's uh, got some rudimentary stuff down.
5: You know, I can tell when you're coming by the oh, sound of your footsteps. I thought of I thought,
6: I knew you're going to say that when I wrote that. Down.
5: Dear listeners, Diana, if you don't know, is a tiny girl, hundred pounds soaking wet. She will rattle your neighborhood when she is walking from the I living do. room to the kitchen. I put
6: all hundred pounds down in each foot. I think you found a
5: couple hundred extra because I have lost fragile things off of shelves.
6: That's not just true. On you.
5: Walk by to get a glass of water.
6: <laughs> Listen, it. you know, I wanted I wanted a presence, all right? <laughs> uh, yes, you found one. I actually don't know why I walk like that. I don't know. Do people know why they walk the way they walk?
5: Oh, there's a whole, like, body language studies about how you walk and what it means. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay.
6: definitely. I guess I should look that up and see what it says about me. I
5: feel like they'd charge us double for those footsteps.
6: <laughs> 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 we had to put her on the sprung dance floor. Geez. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So she's she can definitely tell when I'm coming and she knows when you're coming too. more than likely if she's met you before. She's figured some way of of, you know, identifying the people around her. Um, So there's some rudimentary stuff, as I say, but she's still mostly stuck in her own head, you know, for the most part. And she you know, they can't figure out how to help her progress. Right. In the house.
5: So her parents were looking for solutions, of course. Her mom had heard about this woman named Laura Bridgman, who was the first deaf and blind person to get a full education. They wrote to a specialist in Baltimore who referred them to a man named Alexander Graham Bell. Might have heard of him if you've ever made a phone call before. (laughs) Uh, He was working with deaf children at the time, and he suggested to them that they should contact the Perkins Institute for the Blind, where Laura Bridgman had been educated. And that director of the school asked his star pupil, recent graduate and valedictorian, Anne Sullivan, to be Helen's instructor.
6: Anne Sullivan, the miracle worker.
5: You might know her as the miracle worker <laughs> if you've ever seen that play, yeah, uh, play the yeah. famed show, uh, stage play. I saw, I think I saw it in high school at like Thespian Conference or something, but... Mm. I blocked so much of that out. <laughs> I, you, like, I remember the moments, trauma. Of thespian conference. Thespian conference was the whole thing, and I and you know what? There's a bunch of theater kids out there being like, "Yeah, thespian conference. That's where we got to cut loose and do drugs and have sex." And you know that was just not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> my thespian conference was I saw a bunch of mediocre high school theater shows. Oh. Um, performed in a few mediocre high school theater shows and then went home.
6: <laughs> wow. So uh,
5: once again, everybody in high school was having more fun than old Eli was having. Oh, <laughs> well, You'll
6: never have to go back.
5: Uh, Does that make you feel better? I hope not. If I end up as a high school drama teacher, uh, something went wrong. Yeah, right? Shout out to the high school drama teachers out there who are, uh, you know, Creating the Eli's mm-hmm. of the future right now, right. for better or worse.
6: <laughs> yeah, maybe it's something for the best. It's for the better because it means that there's money for a drama teacher in the well, school. Yeah. So, yes, Ann Sullivan was asked to be Helen's instructor. And it sounds like a great choice, honestly, when you look at Ann Sullivan's life. Mm-hmm. Um, Her early life was pretty marked with tragedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, When she was five, she got a bacterial infection called trachoma, which caused painful infections in her eyes and made her partially blind before she had learned to read or write. Uh, When she was eight, her mother died of tuberculosis. And two years later, her father abandoned the family. Uh, just abandon his children because he was like I don't think I can raise them on my own which made me be like oh so they should raise themselves on their own that's a better option I don't know we talk
5: about privilege
6: right very sure. be able to just
5: go nah not doing this yeah bye he's like oh things are difficult you know what I'm gonna do walk the fuck away no more problems dust off my (laughs) hands and free to go ah Boy, my life is so much better now.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to make some new problems for someone else.
5: <laughs> Whew, really dodged a bullet there, raising that <laughs> terrible family I didn't want.
6: <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah, he sucked. And Anne and her younger brother, James, who was also disabled, they both went to go live in this poor house, basically. It was a hospital for mm. orphan children, um, particularly if they had any kind of disability, uh, mental or physical. And only four months later, James would also die of tuberculosis oh my God. at the hospital. And she underwent like a number of unsuccessful operations to restore her eyesight, which is like sounds just just frustrating She have to go through all that and then not get anything out of it. Yeah. Um, and she got sent to the Perkins Institute after the hospital she was in, which was called Tewkesbury Almshouse, was accused by Massachusetts Governor Benjamin Butler of abusing and neglecting their patients. Of killing orphaned babies and selling their bodies to doctors for dissection oh. and study, and even of cannibalism.
5: Oh, so he
6: was making a big stink about <laughs> Tewksbury Almshouse. And I'm like, what happened at Tewkesbury? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Jesus, eating babies, selling babies.
6: <laughs> well, apparently, that was not unusual. And you know, 1880s was a prime time for grave robbing for science sure. purposes yeah so it was not unusual for that to happen actually and of, especially among the poor if you were poor and you died that's probably what happened to you you a know a lot of know?
5: dr frankensteins out there yeah. looking for subjects
6: digging digging holes yeah I mean, apparently a lot of his more outrageous claims were disproven, so it sounds like maybe he was just trying to kick up a big old dust to get the real problems, looked yeah, at, yeah, Because they weren't sexy enough on their own or something, right, but the conditions there were still extremely bleak and abusive, and Anne wrote about it she she you know in kind of in support of his his whole investigation and so right she's like, oh yeah, it sucks there, I live there, it sucks. <laughs> And Tewksbury underwent several inspections, and one of the inspectors was the head of the Perkins School. So Anne, like, pleaded with him to please let her come study there. And he, he said, all right. And so she arrived at the school in 1880. So ask. <laughs> Never hurts uh, to ask. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: <laughs> I like that. He was <laughs> yeah, right? the inspectors there, and she's like, get me out of here, please. <laughs> Look around you. <laughs> so at the Perkins Institute... Teachers found Anne to be rude and defiant. They called her Miss Spitfire, mm-hmm. which I mean would be a total fucking badge of honor. Please call yeah, me Mr. Spitfire. It's not a bad name Spitfire. now,
6: but back then it was like <laughs> probably like a scarlet letter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean,
5: she had rough manners, but she was also super smart. She graduated in 1887, the valedictorian of her class. And maybe in talking to Helen's mother and father about her, the director of the school might have been like, <laughs> I've got an idea, (laughs) this child. (laughs) Anne will know how to deal with her, yes. (laughs) And you know, he might have been right. Mm -hmm. Because Anne knew something about being lonely, about being isolated, about not having anyone to talk to. When she arrived in Alabama in March of 1887, she wrote, The loneliness of my heart was an old acquaintance. Anyway, I had been lonely all my life. My surroundings only were to be different. She arrived at Helen's house on March fifth, a day Helen called my soul's birthday. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Banner Banner Day, Red Letter Day.
6: Oh yeah. I mean, and you, I get it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just like finally somebody's here to like freaking change my life. <laughs> yeah. So Anne almost immediately got into an argument with Helen's parents oh. because. Helen's parents, Helen's family, you know, I mentioned they were kind of rich Southerners. Well,
5: Oh, in the late 1800s? Yeah. Yeah.
6: No surprise. They had had enslaved people and they had fought for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Oh, boy. Uh, So Anne is still a spitfire. She was fully willing to enter into a battle with her employers (laughs) at their home (laughs) about this serious issue. Uh
5: Uh-huh. Uh, which hi, I thanks. think is kind of awesome <laughs> hi thanks so much for hiring me first of all <laughs> I got something to say
6: but she did manage to really connect with Helen
5: yeah.
6: I mean eventually <laughs> it took <laughs> it did take a few weeks mm-hmm. to make a significant breakthrough with Helen because and first of all was like she needs to not be wandering around and grab it she's a human being like she right. can't be wandering around like this she's yeah. got to be taught manners and she can learn manners it's Totally fine and doable. So she's going to sit at the table and she's going to eat with a knife and fork. And she's Mm. going to, you know, like act like a normal child as much as possible. And she was very strict about that. And that made Helen really frustrated, of course. Yeah, sure. She had not been doing that before. Right. Um, And also she was constantly grabbing Helen's hand and like spelling words into her palm the first word she spelled for her was doll d-o-l-l because she had brought her a doll so she hmm. spelled it and then she hands her the doll right um but helen didn't know what words were really at this point because wow. again she was just a baby really when she lost those senses yeah um she had not been taught to speak to read to you know she didn't have any of that con- couldn't
5: even see concept yeah in her brain at all the idea of Assigning a word to a thing,
6: yeah, exactly, was
5: foreign to her. That's so I
6: imagine a lot of her home signs were like verbs, like yeah, get you know that I need eat, drink, something right, like that, right. but not so much like this is a glass, this is yeah. a thing.
5: Yeah, I mean that's that's so interesting to think
6: yeah. if you didn't
5: if you didn't know. Oh, God, it's hard to even wrap your brain around because you do know words.
6: Right. I mean, because you know? we learn them as babies, so yeah. we, don't, we don't remember not having that concept yeah, anymore. Yeah, our, our
5: brains form around that concept.
6: Right. So, yeah, so when she's grabbing Helen's hand and spelling words into her palm, Helen just thought it was a fun game she was doing. And she immediately started trying to mimic the hand movements herself. But, again, mm-hmm. she just thought it was a fun thing. She would go and show her mom. and She thought it was, like, a fun thing they were doing together. Yeah. So she didn't know what they meant at all. She she called it monkey like imitation. Okay. Uh, herself. So she's like, I real I was just like, cool, whatever. But Anne was always constantly grabbing her hand, spelling something, grabbing her hand, spelling something. And so they, sh- without being able to understand what she was doing, obviously it was a very frustrating experience. Yeah. She threw lots of tantrums. They had a lot of clashes. <laughs> she broke some stuff. Mm-hmm. Like she was. They were having a hard time for a little while.
5: But then finally one day. Anne followed Helen out of the house, and they ended up at the water pump. And this, if there's any part of this story that you've heard, it's probably this. While Helen held her hand under the flow of the water, Anne spelled out the word water in her palm. And, like magic, it just clicked. That. it has a name is the, the <laughs> famous scene from yes. The Miracle it Worker. has a name. But yeah, it's just the, the suddenly the idea just all came together. Things have names. Words have meaning. Helen describes the moment herself. She said, I stood still. My whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten. A thrill of returning thought. And somehow, the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, set it free. That's amazing.
6: Incredible. The
5: idea just suddenly like a spark Mm -hmm. of conscious thought just exploding into this whole realm of knowledge that you hadn't realized before. Yeah. Uh, that's so cool. That's so fascinating.
6: Well, and for someone to be old enough to be able to remember that happening. Uh-huh. Like I said, uh-huh. we all have that moment. Right. right. But we can't remember it because it happens when we're really young. So yeah. it's kind of cool to have someone tell you what that would have been for your yeah. your little toddler self when you would have learned that concept. So, so does cool. that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So that's kind of cool too. And again, just a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, after that, she became a voracious learner. She almost exhausted Anne being like, spell this. What's this? What's this? What's this? <laughs> all over the house. Uh, she'd be like, oh, my God, it's a table. You know, whatever.
5: Kids love questions.
6: Right. She was suddenly why, why, why and all over yeah. the house. But Anne was the only one who could answer her. <laughs> so Anne got tired. Uh, but Anne loved it. She talked a little bit about her educational, uh, how it changed, because she said she showed up with the very... Strict curriculum in mind uh-huh. of like, we're going to do this for a ser- certain period of time and this is how we're going to do it. And then she was like, I quickly realized that was not working. It was just causing her a lot of frustration. If I just follow what interests her mm-hmm. and tell her about it, she'll be excited to learn about it. And she was like, honestly, it's not just a deaf, blind child that can learn from that, that method. That's the way to teach kids, period. Because right. as long as they're engaged, they're learning. But once they're done, they're done. You can't force it <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because, again, she's teaching in 1880. We're still learning a lot about education oh, yeah. now. We talked about that kind of in the Margaret Wise Brown episode. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it's so interesting that she's kind of saying what we're all saying now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think she's a contemporary of the Montessori, the okay, woman who yeah. started the Montessori school, yeah. so makes sense. But yeah, so Anne's like killing it, telling her all these words. So within six months, Helen had learned five hundred and seventy-five words. She had learned some multiplication tables, and she had learned the Braille system. She could read, and she had written her first letter as well.
5: Amazing.
6: I mean, going from nothing to like just having the concept of words to yeah. all that is like pretty quick. Right, yeah, that's amazing progress. She's only seven, by the way, at this time. <laughs> and so Anne told her parents she should really be educated at Perkins. Um, she should go to that school. Now she's she's ready for school. And so the next year, they went together. Anne accompanied Helen back to the school. She continued to kind of head up her instruction. And Helen got real famous, real fast, for how bright she was, how much she had overcame, you know, and how smart she was and how quickly she learned and everything. And so she kind of became a symbol for the school and she raised a lot of money for them, like indirectly, she, right. you know, just through her accomplishments um, until they became the most sought after school for blind people in the country.
5: Amazing. But when Helen was 11, she wrote a short story called The Frost Giant. I'm sorry, wait a minute, like like Loki of Jodenheim? Frost <laughs> yeah. Giant?
6: Yeah, she was writing a story about Loki of Yoda <laughs>
5: and how Odin rescued him as a baby. No, I'm sure it was about something completely different. Um, but no, she was actually accused of plagiarizing this story, whatever it was. And this totally pissed off Anne <laughs> that they would come for Helen like this so much so that she left the school and never taught there again. Yeah. She was like, excuse me, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be talking about Helen like that, throwing shade at my Helen. Right. Goodbye.
6: Oh, hell no.
5: Slam the door. She still
6: had ties with the school, but she just was like, I'm I'm good with you. (laughs) We're good.
5: And Helen had to go before a panel of suspicious teachers who did not believe her at all including the director of the school, who had made her this symbol of the school's quality. Like, he had been a passionate advocate for her. Mm -hmm. We're teaching Helen Keller here. Everybody, come to this school. Gather round. Look
6: how great she's doing. Look at this
5: amazing work we're doing with Helen Keller. And then, as soon as things turned, he, he turned real quick. He called her a living lie.
6: Outrageous! I mean, you're 11 years old and you're Uh, going to call me a living lie.
5: I'm sorry. Have you been telling this living lie all the time that you were using me to get people to come to your school? Right. Sir?
6: I feel like probably several people out there with 11 year olds are like, oh, they lie. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Oh, they are lie.
5: Sure. (laughs) Which is fair. (laughs) Also, if an 11 year old plagiarizes, you don't like drag them before a board. Overkill. This is an educational (sighs) opportunity. Yeah, let me teach you about plagiarizing and why it's bad. At any rate.
6: Especially because apparently it was a little gift for the director. Like, she wasn't turning it in for
5: a grade. Oh, my God. So, this Slate article titled, Did Helen Keller Really Do All That? says that Mark Twain, who was later a close friend of Helen's, called the panel a bunch of decayed turnips. (laughs) In case you're looking for a new insult to use. I
6: feel like Congress is full of decayed turnips. Oh,
5: yeah. It also says that the experience taught Helen how easily, quote, the same people who had put her on a pedestal found it to turn on her. Mm. Cruel. Yeah. Welcome to the world, Helen.
6: Oh, man, it's so true. Mm-hmm. So at 14, she and Anne moved to New York so she could attend the Wright-Humason School for the Deaf. In 1900, she was admitted to Radcliffe College at Harvard University.
5: Hey, that's would have been uh, the same school shortly before Elizabeth Marston.
6: Yeah, that's true. From
5: William and Elizabeth Marston and Olive Byrne, who all created Wonder Woman together. Yeah. Yeah. Check out that episode if you haven't heard it. It's a hot one.
6: (laughs) True. (laughs) Yeah, Mark Twain helped arrange her tuition because he introduced her to this, like, super rich oil magnate or whatever who paid for everything. Oh. Thanks, Mark Twain. Yeah. (laughs) Way to get a some some, way to wring some money out of an oil magnate. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) For something good. In 1903, she published her famed autobiography, The Story of My Life, Um, and it was very well received as, you know, I'm sure many of us were assigned it in school probably or whatever. Um, She graduated in 1904, becoming the first deaf and blind woman to earn a Bachelor of the Arts degree, and Helen was really determined to communicate As much as possible and as normally as possible, she did learn to speak. She went to speech therapy, so she was able to use her voice. She learned to hear people using the TODOMA method, which is where the deaf-blind person would put their little finger on the speaker's lips and their other three fingers along the speaker's jawline. So while you're speaking, they can kind of feel the puffs of air coming out of your lips. They can feel the vibrations of your vocal cords and kind of get a good idea of what you're saying. Uh, which sounds, I mean, it sounds like you would never be able to know what was happening. I, I don't know if I could get much out of that, but it, it worked It's for incredible. a long time. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, it's one of those things that I'm like, I would do it once. and I'd be like, no, this is impossible. Yeah. I could never hear. This. But, you know, months and months of practice, yeah. you can learn lots of crazy shit.
6: Oh, yeah, totally. It was it was called tactile lip reading as well as the Tadoma method. Mm. It's rarely used today. Um, no surprise. Yeah, don't people don't pe- like
5: having fingers in their face.
6: Uh, right, especially now. You'd be like, please don't put your f- hand yeah. on your face. Uh, and of course, Helen also learned finger spelling in the manual alphabet Right. as well.
5: So now that she was out of school, Helen and Anne purchased a house in Rentham, Massachusetts, that they could live in and work in. This household grew by one as Anne's suitor, John Albert Macy, joined them.
6: Yeah, it's kind of a bonus romance for y'all. Yeah. Anne and John as well.
5: John was a Harvard instructor and a literary critic, and in 1902, he helped Helen edit her autobiography. For over a year, he asked Anne to marry him, but she kept refusing. He was younger than her, and she seems to have had kind of the maybe the stronger personality of the two, mm-hmm, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And she was Catholic, and he wasn't. And though she wasn't very religious, she was still reluctant to break that Sacrament of marrying outside of Catholicism—they mm-hmm. really drill it, India. Those Catholics, mm-hmm. don't they?
6: They do. All my they Catholic do. friends
5: are like, even though I am not religious at all, everything they taught me is buried deep,
6: <laughs> <laughs> deep, <laughs> I cannot inside. break. I recently saw a beautiful picture of um, a married couple who had to be buried in separate cemeteries because yeah. they were Catholic and Protestant, oh. and so is a wall between the Catholic side and the Protestant side. Uh-huh. So they bought their plots. Right up uh-huh. against the wall. They built, like, a tower, and it has two hands reaching out and holding, clasping over the wall. And it's beautiful. That's sweet. And I'm like, you should just let them be buried together. That's I know. insane. Over the, okay.
5: the, the hoops they make you jump through. <laughs> it's like,
6: they had to do a whole friggin' sculpture project <laughs> so they could <laughs> be like, also, we were married even though there's a wall between and, our like, graves.
5: like, let's say... Let's say the idea is, like, God would be angry if a Protestant was buried in the Catholic graveyard. Mm-hmm. Do you think God is like, oh, they, they, they pulled one over on me. I know, They right? figured it out. Hmm. Oh, well, God bless him. Me bless
6: him. <laughs> me bless him.
5: <laughs> now, of course, both John and Anne were very devoted to Helen. But Anne probably also worried about how her marital status would change her and Helen's relationship. Even though Helen was like, go for it. Do it, girl. Mm-hmm. Go get married. Yes. Get you some. She once told Anne, Oh, teacher, if you love John and let him go, I shall feel like a hideous accident.
6: <laughs> I mean, wow. yeah. Which is a great point because the, the truly the relationship between Helen and Anne is, is the real story. Right. Because they had a very deep bond. Yeah. As far as anyone can tell, of course. I mean, they're not here to talk about it. Right. But they really loved each other a lot. And there was kind of like such a closeness that I think Anne was really worried that John would never really be a part of that Mm -hmm. and she could never let him in like that yeah you know so I think she was also worried that he would always feel like an outsider in his own house that's
5: fair but I also see like Helen saying this here it sounds like she's saying don't let me of course be different don't let me Mm -hmm. be you know, I'm just your friend. We do this thing together, but you can have a relationship. Right. That fe- that makes me feel like a monster if I'm holding you back.
6: Exactly. You know, we'll I'm just fine. a regular person. Mm-hmm.
5: Everything's going to be okay. Go get married. Yeah. Do your thing.
6: Yeah. And Anne does seem to have been deeply in love with John. In her letters to him, she wrote, Dearest heart, I am always a little shivery when you leave me, as if the spirit of death shut his wings over me. But the next moment, the thought of your love for me brings a rush of life back to my heart. I sat a long time thinking of you and trying to find a reason for your love for me. How wonderful it is, and how impossible to understand. Love is the very essence of life itself. Reason has nothing to do with it. It is above all things and stronger. Lovely. And she was funny, too. She also wrote, haven't you had enough of New York? Idling about clubs and going to the operas and so very much fun, is it? Aren't you longing to come back to your 12 or 15 hours of work every day and me? <laughs>
5: <laughs> ah, cute.
6: <laughs> Adorable.
5: Now, eventually, Anne acquiesced and they married in May of 1905. John became Helen's editor and manager, and he negotiated terms for her domestic and foreign publications. In 1909, Helen joined the Socialist Party. And John was a big socialist. Mm -hmm. And he would correspond regularly with other socialist writers like Upton Sinclair. Mm -hmm. Anne, however, probably because of her difficult and impoverished upbringing was kind of skeptical that there was any chance of society changing in any significant way. Mm-hmm. But Helen had grown up more comfortable in this wealthy southern home, you know, they had enough money to meet their needs anyway, so she was a little more idealistic. Mm-hmm. She would correspond regularly with Eugene Debs and even learned German Braille so that she could read Karl Marx. Mm-hmm
6: she was never a communist. Right. She said like that people who didn't like socialism had heard of Karl Marx but didn't understand him. Yeah. <laughs> or hadn't read it at all. That's which no, is not untrue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, she was never a communist, even though she was monitored by the, the government of by course. the FBI at some point. But who wasn't. Exactly. Host among us. us. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as Helen started to write about something other than herself and her disabilities Again, the same people who had put her on a pedestal before totally turned on her. Oh, jeez. She was frequently accused in the press of faking her disabilities. Wow. People assumed that someone blind and deaf would be incapable of writing a book. (sighs) Uh, They also assumed that her politics and opinions had come from outside influences in her life, which I was kind of like, I mean, that's sort of... That's everyone. I mean, everyone heard about something from someone else, (laughs) more than likely. Right. So it seems like a weird criticism. Right. But they were like, there's caretakers around her, so she's just having people, like, tell her what to think. Okay. Which sort of takes away her own working brain, but all right.
5: Uh, Yeah, exactly.
6: (laughs) In 1916, Helen donated $100 to the NAACP with a note. Ashamed in my very soul, I behold in my own beloved Southland the tears of those who are oppressed. Oh. Well, of course, her beloved Southland did not like that. Oh,
5: boy. Here they come.
6: And Alabama newspapers claimed she had been misled and, quote, trained by those around her to parrot their own beliefs. <laughs> like I said, as if she was incapable of forming her own opinions. Right. things. And another writer said she was socialist because of, quote, the manifest limitations of her development. Which is so patronizing. <laughs> You'd have to be deaf and blind to be a socialist. Like, that's very rude. But despite all of that, she continued to write. She often rebutted this kind of criticism with humor. Um, but she continued to write essays and articles about her politics. She advocated for birth control and workers' rights and women's right to vote. Awesome. Um, especially, particularly where it intersected, of course, with, with issues of being Blind or having any vision right, loss. Because right. she was talk a lot about like, I went to factories and wow, it's no wonder a bunch of your workers are becoming blinded because you have terrible conditions oh. and all you're doing is pocketing all the profit you can and mm-hmm. you're leaving everyone else behind.
5: Oh, sure glad that doesn't happen anymore.
6: I know, right? Whew. Clean that one up, just like Anne thought we wouldn't. <laughs> and, like, I personally agree with all those stances. You know, maybe you don't, but I do. <laughs> yeah.
5: Maybe you don't think women should have the right to vote. Maybe
6: you think. <laughs>
5: <laughs> In which case, go, maybe ahead and, you wish. go ahead and unplug your <laughs> headphones or your phone. Uh, set your phone <laughs> on a dry towel and uh, throw yourself off a bridge.
6: <laughs> a dry towel? <laughs> Not a wet towel. Yeah, well, I don't
5: want to ruin your phone.
6: I know, right? Totally. We can recycle that. <laughs> No, but it, it is not like Helen was always right or that yeah. you can always agree with everything yeah. everybody ever said. That's true. Uh, she did also write in 1915 in support of eugenics. Um, she thought that infants with severe mental impairments or physical deformities should be denied life-saving medical procedures wow. because they wouldn't lead quality lives and they would probably become criminals, oh. which I think is the weirdest thing. <laughs> <laughs> about. <laughs> To assume about people with severe deformities or impairments or whatever, to assume that they would turn to a life of crime. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to imagine the all disabled like heist movie where they're like making plans, you know, in like a discreet location, (laughs) like a stair driver.
5: Somebody should make that movie.
6: I would totally watch it. Absolutely. Absolutely. What
5: are they? What are they stealing?
6: Um.
5: Like decent health care (laughs) benefits.
6: Marriage equality. Marriage equality.
5: <laughs> like First
6: floor apartments. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to take all Again. the first floor apartments in the city.
5: Accessib- we stole Access- accessibility yeah. and added it to all these buildings. Like, they're they're go going to a
6: lot of places and installing elevators. Yeah, right.
5: <laughs> they really root for the heist mm-hmm. in that movie.
6: I know, right? Someone make that movie
2: for Please. real.
6: I would totally watch that. And I will, I will say, just to put this in a little bit of context. Yeah. During that time, eugenics was like a really hot science oh, topic. Yeah. A lot of science and like intellectual thinkers were dabbling in eugenics theory. Yep. And it was really some of it wasn't they hadn't quite got to the whole thing where you should sterilize and all that type of thing. Right. Um, which is where it got real dicey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Helen, like many of those scientists from this time period, did move away from eugenics Later on in 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 later years, you know what I mean. They kind of, yeah. they gave up on that idea yeah. when it when again when it got dicey. Yeah, which you know, arguably started dicey. <laughs> 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 but I will just say, just again, at the time it was just like talking about electric cars or something. You know, it was like the science uh-huh. thing of the day or something, uh-huh. and. A lot of people got got into it, you know?
5: If we just let a bunch of people die, then humanity will be better off. And then they're like, oh, wait, I talked to one of those people and I realized that I'm an asshole.
6: Right. I forgot they're like human beings.
5: Yeah. But having opinions and the ability to express them wasn't the only thing that people thought folks with disabilities couldn't do. There was also a lot of debate about whether or not anyone with disabilities should marry and have kids. There's a blog called Something Rhymed, which said that Helen was apparently very eager to be attractive to the opposite sex. But when her mother found out that a young male scholar was going to lead one of Helen's college exams, she asked the school to replace him with a woman. Mm. Anne was also so disapproving of the romance novels that Helen liked that Helen would read her Braille copies of them in secret. So she was interested in love and romance And she felt natural sexual urges just like anyone else. But because she was blind and deaf, people thought that she couldn't be allowed to act on these impulses. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. We don't know if Anne was specifically against romance for Helen or not. Being partially blind herself and already married, we can kind of assume that she would.
6: Probably, Probably not like, have a big problem It's with okay that. with
5: you. It, it's possible some scholarly types of the era just didn't like romance novels on principle. That <laughs> yeah, was like exactly. a trash TV of the day. Mm-hmm. So she might have just been like, right, give me that garbage and <laughs> throw it in the trash. You shouldn't be reading this smut.
6: Right. It'd be know? like, yeah, your teacher being like, stop watching Real Housewives of Potomac and freaking watch a <laughs> documentary or something. Something to improve your mind. <laughs>
5: but still, Helen's mother and other people of the day were... You know, of the mindset that, Helen, you you shouldn't marry because marrying means having children and Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have children. And, you know, all these kinds of just fucked up ideologies.
6: Which is so weird because hers was specifically a sickness too, like it wasn't genetic. Right. So then, what's the problem with getting married? But they were just like, you can't have that
5: for yeah, some reason. Yeah. Like you, you're unfit to be a mother. Like, probably. You can have
6: everything else, but you can't yeah. raise a child.
5: A wife and a mother are a very specific thing, and you can't be those. Yeah. I think was just odd, uh,
6: weird, nonsense. like. Yeah.
5: Still, Helen's life was being deprived of romance, you know, in many different ways, like mm-hmm. this. But fate was soon to intervene just as these commercials are about to intervene in our podcast. So (laughs) we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back.
3: From BBC
4: Radio 4,
3: Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
4: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
5: He says, somebody's in the house. And I
3: screamed. (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
1: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumbacasino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
2: We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, A-L-L. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude.
3: You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.
0: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
5: Hopefully having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
6: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
4: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed the 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May live on NFL network, ESPN two and streaming on NFL plus terms and conditions apply to NFL plus visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
5: Welcome back lovelies to the show.
6: Hmm. Sadly by 1914. Anne and John's marriage had really disintegrated. Oh, no. And the reason's not fully clear. It might be that the financial situation around the house was pretty shaky.
5: Okay, okay.
6: Uh, it might have been Anne's fiery personality. Um, she might have found it a little bit harder to, like, rein in her her temper maybe. Or, again, she was the stronger personality of the two, so maybe he felt kind of domineered by her or something. Um, or... Could have been that devotion to Helen outweighing her devotion to John. And he did feel like an outsider in their marriage, like like she may have, may have worried about. Mm. But whatever the cause, John and Anne separated. They were never formally divorced, but they did separate. And Anne was really heartbroken. Helen wrote, For days, she would shut herself up, almost stunned, trying to think of a plan that would bring John back. Or weeping, as only women who are no longer
5: cherished weep. Oh my God. God, Helen. Ouch. Like a I knife mean, in the ouch. heart. <laughs> As only women who are no longer cherished weep.
6: I get it, though. I mean, when you go Jeez. through a dumping, right? That's what it means. You're not special to someone yeah. anymore.
5: Yeah. And, and that's that is
6: really painful. A
5: singular sound. I mean, I, no. I feel it. I hear it.
6: Yeah. Again, Brudal. she really like brought you right to it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, damn.
5: I mean, it's like. It's almost like a girl whose entire education was very focused on words <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> learned right? how to use them very yeah. well.
6: <laughs> Anne herself said, of the many friendships that have enriched my life, none is more interesting than that with John Macy. So John eventually moved out and a Scotswoman named Polly Thompson moved in to keep house. And not long after, they all went on a 15 month lecture tour.
5: Oh, lucky Polly.
6: I know, right? Pretty sweet.
5: a yeah, pretty good job here. <laughs> oh,
6: Polly, my goodness. Your brogue is so thick.
5: <laughs> a couple years later, now 1916, and Anne got really sick. She was misdiagnosed with tuberculosis. Something's telling me the early 1900s, late 1800s <laughs> medical care was not quite up to par. <laughs> she was recommended to go convalesce somewhere warm, And she decided to travel to Puerto Rico with Polly.
6: Sounds great. Yeah, I mean... I'd like to travel to Puerto Rico. somebody
5: misdiagnosed me with tuberculosis. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be on my way. (laughs) But that, of course, meant Helen was going to be home alone and that she would need a full-time private secretary while Anne was away. Mm -hmm. So a friend of John Macy's, a 29-year-old named Peter Fagan, came to Rentham. Peter was a young, handsome journalist also a socialist Mm -hmm. and as he spelled words into her palm to help her keep up with her correspondence and writings they learned more and more about each other and quickly fell in love
6: And they knew that you know what kind of prejudice they would be facing in their decision to be married right because they were in love so they wanted to get married dare you fall
5: in love and get married
6: so they'd planned to marry in secret Peter actually investigated the possibility of marrying Helen by telephone. Oh, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting in
5: 1916, especially. <laughs> I mean, it's like a like a switchboard wedding. Yeah, totally. Like, hello, operator. How can I take your call?
6: Uh, yes, operator. Uh, well, will you tell uh, Klondike one nine five that I say I do?
5: Yes, Klondike nine one six five. Whatever it was. <laughs> yes, your fiance says I do. Your response, please.
6: Oh, I I do
5: too. Thank you for using the telephone. (laughs) I guess there's only one. The telephone. (laughs) You may now kiss the receiver of your telephone.
6: (laughs) Well, that's probably what he was planning. But no, they wouldn't let them marry by telephone. Uh, So they applied for a license in Boston and they intended to elope. But a reporter in Boston got wind of it and they published an article about it. Like wow. full TMZ action happening oh my god! in Boston. He's like, X3, X3, read all about it. Let's collectively ruin one woman's only chance of love and happiness. Five cents a copy.
5: Oh, I'll take a copy of that, young man. <laughs> a woman's happiness will have none of it. Not in, not in my country.
6: Ugh, gross. Well, so his article comes out and Helen's mother found it and read it and got super mad and was like, oh, hell no. Mm. One source said she didn't like Peter because he believed in equality between black and white people. And of course, she did not. So she was like, oh, no. Um, Other sources said she probably wouldn't have let Helen marry anybody. Maybe it was a bit of both. Yeah,
5: I'm pretty sure it's both.
1: <laughs>
6: yeah, that's, she was probably like, okay, if it was a rich, like, southern confederacy doctor asshole, then maybe you could have talked me into it. Yeah. But it's not. It's a socialist from Boston. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it was probably a bit of both. And she immediately fired Peter. She hustled Helen onto a train back to Montgomery, Alabama to get them as far as part, apart from each other as she could. Wow. And it's possible that Peter was even threatened at gunpoint by someone in the Keller family, wow. probably one of Helen's brothers. Right. Um, but that might just be an exaggeration.
5: Now, the story kind of gets a little muddled here. The most common version is that letters between Peter and Helen were smuggled back and forth between them by their friends, and they decided to marry anyway. The plan was for Helen to sneak out of the house and be on her porch in the middle of the night. And then Peter would come and get her, and she would be gone before anyone knew anything about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Happily ever after, ding-dong, wedding bells were gone. So Helen packed her bags, she sat on the porch waiting, and Peter never showed up. Helen was heartbroken, and they never saw each other again.
6: Hmm. But Peter's daughter, Anne Fagin Ginger, says that is not quite how it went down. Oh. Um, she told the American Foundation for the Blind that Peter wrote, did write a secret letter in Braille, arranging for Helen to wait on her front porch for him. Right. She said, it was arranged in that fashion because my father was not an athletic man and didn't want to get into a physical scuffle with Helen's brothers. Oh. Which makes sense to me, especially if they threatened him at gunpoint already. Like, right. What? And continued, he came down from Boston at the appointed time, but Helen was not waiting on the porch. He never saw her again.
5: Oh, damn.
6: So the common thread there is that they never saw each other again. Right. And they were probably forced to part by their families. Yeah. somebody Or by her family. I should be more specific.
5: One of them was there at the porch and one of them wasn't. Mm-hmm. But neither of them chose that. Don't Yeah. Neither of them was like, nah, never mind. Fuck you.
6: <laughs> right. Right.
5: Because that wouldn't make sense. Kim E. Nielsen wrote in Helen Keller's Selected Writings that quote, her extended family vigorously squashed the relationship. All felt adamantly that marriage and childbearing were not options for a deafblind woman. She apparently acquiesced to this belief. Peter Fagan disappeared from her life. Damn. Again, just the rudeness. The so, I mean, cruelty.
6: So sad to just be like, well, something happened to you as a baby, so now you have to be alone forever. <laughs> That's Yeah. Not very loving. No,
5: no. And I I decide what you can do with your life and what a person can do with their life in general.
6: And what you're capable of.
5: Yeah, exactly. Helen herself wrote that Peter's love, quote, which had come unseen and unexpected, was a little island of joy surrounded by dark waters. But her 1968 obituary in The New York Times indicates that she never forgot Peter or her yearning for romance. It says, for years, her spinsterhood was a chief disappointment. If I could see, she said bitterly, I would marry first of all. Heartbreaking.
6: Lord. Mm.
5: God, it just makes me angry.
6: I know. (laughs) Someone was made
5: sad for stupid reasons.
6: Seriously. And Peter never forgot about Helen either. Um, Another of his daughters, Jean Fagan Yellen responded to a post about Helen and Peter on the blog Of Battered Aspect. And she said that Peter ended up marrying a teacher named Sarah Robinson, and they were the center of a small radical circle in East Lansing, Michigan. So he kept that radical politics up (laughs) and everything. And she wrote, My father did not often mention Helen, but when he did, he spoke of her with warmth. It is my understanding that he left her when his life was threatened. He kept the ring Helen gave him, and when I was in my teens, seeing it in a drawer, I asked him if I could wear it. It has been on my finger ever since. So it's kind of a few different little stories, and it's funny to see his family respond to these, because some of them are like, according to him, I'm his, you know, my mom is his grandma or whatever, and they all have kind of a little different story. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's just funny how memory works. Yeah, kind for of, sure, for you sure. Know? But, yeah, the real, again, the main thread is that they never got to get married and they never saw each other again.
5: Because people are assholes. Right. Star-crossed love for real. Mm. A real uh, real Romeo and Juliet story if Romeo doesn't have a family involved that we know of. (laughs) And Juliet's family was a bunch of racist assholes. Right. Yeah. But soon the whole country would become preoccupied. When America declared war on Germany in 1917, formally entering what was known as the Great War. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but it was kind <laughs> of a big deal. Had a big franchise, at least one sequel so far.
0: <laughs> so, so far.
5: Helen wrote to Anne and Polly to let them know that this war was happening, and they came back to the U.S., which, thank God, because Anne said she hadn't gotten a newspaper in, like, weeks, right?
6: Oh, yeah. She's, she's like, in Puerto Rico. She's, like, some of the mail's not coming through. We don't have a (laughs) newspaper. I hope we're not at war yet, but I know we probably will be soon, so let me Uh know.
5: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Dear Anne, stop. Right. Uh, It's happening. Stop.
6: (laughs) (laughs) We're at war. Stop. Uh, Wish we could stop, stop.
5: (laughs) So both Helen and Anne now had very sad memories of their lost loves in the Rentham house. So they decided we're going to sell this place, get the hell out of here and start over in New York. Yeah. Now, Helen was a pacifist, so she wrote anti-war articles and gave anti-war speeches for several months. Then in 1918, she got a call from Tinseltown and they traveled to California to work on a silent film about Helen's life called Deliverance. I saw Deliverance, I mean, and I don't think it had anything to do with Helen Keller. I guess I just misunderstood I mean, what I was hope, happening there.
6: I hope not much in the movie Deliverance is related yeah. to Helen Keller's life.
5: No, I uh, uh, believe that they are unrelated movies
6: <laughs> called <Different> Deliverance. Deliverance.
5: <laughs> but this film Deliverance was considered too artsy. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a critical hit, but commercially it was a flop. People weren't going to see it. Plus the studio got upset at Helen because she took the screenwriter to a dinner for Walt Whitman, which was full of like artists and radicals. <gasps> and that apparently reflected poorly on the film.
6: I guess they were like, Walt Whitman dinner. What did you do? Plan the next Bolshevik revolution in there? Oh,
5: What a bunch of pinkos! (laughs) You know? So, you know, after all that, Helen, Anne, and Polly came back to New York. And
6: by 1920, people's literary tastes are kind of changing. Helen's writings aren't selling, like, as well as they were. Mm -hmm. And they needed some money up in the house, you know what I mean? Yeah, gotta have money. So, naturally, they turned to vaudeville.
5: (laughs) Oh, sure. I know that when I needed money... Theater was the way That's to go. That's the way.
6: Get up a variety show today Can't for believe... all your GoFundMe needs.
5: <laughs> Can't believe I gave up all that sketch comedy money to come to a <laughs> podcast.
6: Yeah, but no. Yeah, Helen Keller was on Vaudeville, if you didn't know that, because I didn't. I thought that was super cool. They, uh, Helen and Anne joined a variety show circuit and quickly became the most popular act in the whole lineup. It was like a 20-minute routine where Anne would come out. She'd tell a little bit about Helen's life, you know, give her a little intro. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she would do a question and answer session okay. with Helen. And bear in mind, this is right after Prohibition started. Would you like to hear some of it? Hell
5: yeah. Yes. Welcome to the Vaudeville Variety Hurley Burly Extravaganza. A <laughs> dazzling display of splendor to uplift, edify, educate, and amaze. Would you believe it? We have the miracle worker herself, Anne Sullivan Macy, here with the one and only Helen Keller. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so good! And so this is their routine. Can you feel moonshine?
6: No, but I smell it.
5: What is your definition of politics?
6: the art of finding and holding on to profitable jobs.
5: Do you think America has been true to her ideals?
6: I'm afraid to answer that. The Ku Klux Klan might give me a ducking.
5: Do you close your eyes when you sleep?
6: I guess I do, but I never stayed awake to see.
5: What do you think is the most important question before the country today?
6: How to get a drink.
5: Can you suggest any tax the people would pay willingly?
6: Yes, a tax on millionaires.
5: Do you believe a woman can keep a secret?
6: Of course we can. It's the person we tell it to who can't.
5: What can a person do when his constitution is gone?
6: Do as the United States does. Live on the amendments.
5: (laughs) Oh, that's pretty good comedy, honestly.
6: I I liked it. I thought Um, it was pretty good. (laughs) I
5: mean, a couple of zingers in there. Mm Mm-hmm how to get a drink? (laughs) How long was the whole bit?
6: It's about 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Of just that? Yeah, pretty much.
5: 20 minutes of Q&A. And
6: they loved it. Oh, I'm sure they slayed.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It killed. The show toured from 1920 to 1924. And even though many of Helen's friends, like, found it to be scandalous Mm -hmm. that this was happening, Helen enjoyed herself hugely. And said that she was helping the causes of blind people.
6: She's getting a real kick out of this vaudeville tour.
5: (laughs) (laughs) And though she had already met and befriended tons of famous people in her life, including Mark Twain and Alexander Graham Bell, she also made friends with vaudeville celebrities like Sophie Tucker, Charlie Chaplin, Enrico Caruso, and Harpo Marx. (laughs) Cool. Legends.
6: And then in 1924, Helen, Anne, and Polly started working with the American Foundation for the Blind. And AFB had just gotten started in 1921 because so many soldiers came back from the Great War blinded by mustard gas. Oh my God. And so they're, you know, they needed a lot of advocacy. Their lives had completely changed. And there wasn't a lot of that going around for people with disabilities until there were veterans. Yeah, (laughs) there's
5: so much packed into that because I'm like wow, mustard gas was so bad, they had to start a whole foundation Mm -hmm. out of this. And also, wow, you wouldn't start a foundation for the blind until a bunch of soldiers came back from the war blinded? Like, you weren't worried about it until then?
6: Yeah, and they were like, there's like, what, a few schools? Whatever, they're fine. (laughs) I was like, okay. At any rate. Anyway, so they had just, uh, they were still a pretty new organization. And the idea was that Helen, Anne, and Polly were going to be this, instrumental in fundraising. Sure. You know, they would do all these appearances and people would just give, give, give money. Yeah. And together, the women did address over 250,000 people in 127 cities by 1927 to raise money for the AFB. Wow. But unfortunately, they had made an incredibly ambitious $2 million goal, oh. fundraising goal.
5: And that's in 1924.
6: Right. right. So, so that's... Today, Almost $32 million. Like, just speaking as someone who has to fundraise, uh, (laughs) that's that's a lot. That is lofty. I mean, geez. But even though they weren't as successful at fundraising as they wanted to be, they were still invaluable to the organization, just raising awareness, period, for the need for, you know, these services and and this kind of advocacy, lobbying, and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And the director of the AFB dubbed Helen, Ann, and Polly the Three Musketeers. (laughs) And thanks to their work traveling around the United States, state commissions were created, rehabilitation centers were built, and education was made accessible to people with vision loss.
5: Amazing. Throughout these years with the AFB, Anne was getting older. Her health was deteriorating. Her eyesight was failing more and more. Polly started to take over more of Anne's secretarial duties for Helen. When she had joined the household back in 1914, she was just there to keep the house. And she'd never worked with anyone blind or deaf before. She had only heard about the job through her hairdresser, who was also Anne's hairdresser. Talk so, to your hairdresser. Talk to your hairdresser. <laughs> you know, Polly came in and she was like, Oh, mm-hmm. I'm still looking for work. <laughs> can't find anything. I come to America. <laughs> and I'm tra- and there's no, there's no bagpipes to play. <laughs> there's no opportunities for a Scotswoman like me. Mm-hmm. And, and the hairdresser is like, You know...
6: Actually, I heard about a job.
5: She ended up getting this gig. She was interested in it because it involved a lot of travel. And Polly loved to travel.
6: Sounds good to me. I would take a job with a lot of travel. Right?
5: But she deeply respected Helen, and quickly she learned to communicate with her and ended up just as devoted to Anne as she was to Helen. This trio just bonded really Mm -hmm. tightly. And she also apparently had a very strong personality. She was very protective of Helen, just, just awesome that these three very strong personalities had all come together
3: mm-hmm. uh, yeah. t- to
5: live together and and dominate and spread the good word and raise all this awareness. Yeah, really, okay. just a incredible meeting of minds. Like it's amazing that these three people ended up in the same place at the same time.
6: Yeah, totally. Could
5: have gone very differently if she'd if Helen had had you know a less competent teacher or a mm-hmm. less uh, disciplined teacher, someone who wasn't as focused and intense. Yeah.
6: Or wasn't ready to improvise her methods, right, you know? Right, right. Um, and then, yeah, what if Anne never talked to her hairdresser? Right, <laughs> right, What if Polly, you know? I mean, like, that's the great thing about history is just these little weird coincidences that changed everything. Yep.
5: And along came Polly
6: <gasps>
5: and changed the game.
6: Along came I never
5: Polly. saw along came Polly. I'm going to assume that it was about this.
6: All right. Why Gen- not?
5: Jennifer Aniston and, uh, mm. is it Owen Wilson? No clue. I think it's Owen Wilson. Wow. And I think it's about...
6: Wow. What's his wow?
5: Wow. 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 (laughs) Wow. Wow. I think it's about a parrot? No, that's Polly. (laughs) (laughs) With Jay Moore. Anyway. So, yeah, in
6: 1930, Anne had to have one of her eyes removed. Oh, man. Uh, That's how bad it was getting. And the doctor was like, listen, I know y'all bitches love to work, okay? But you need to take a break and heal because you just had, like, a really invasive surgery.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, so they decided to go overseas and go abroad. <laughs>
5: okay. L- you know what? You're right, doctor. I do need to rest and heal. Time for a world tour. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but good for them.
6: Yeah, totally. I'm sure they were like, look, I haven't been overseas yet. Let's do this. They earned it, you know? hmm And they went to visit Polly's family in Scotland. And then they also hit up Ireland, too, while they're over there. Classic trip. Scotland Mm -hmm. and Ireland Mm -hmm. would love to do that one day. And over the next few years, they took a few trips. They went to Europe. They went to Canada, Jamaica, a bunch of places. But Anne's health and her vision just continued to deteriorate. Helen wrote about her feeling the toast to make sure it was cooked and listening intently to the coffee as it percolated so she would know when to take it off the heat. Mm -hmm. Um, and she, she kind of wrote it like she was sort of feeling sorry for her having had yeah. vision for a period of time oh, sure. to not have it anymore. She was sure. kind of like, seemed to be feeling a lot of sympathy for that. She was in a lot of pain. Her eyes bothered her constantly. It got to the point where, a, like, even a white tablecloth was like painful for oh, her to look too bright, at. Yeah. They talked about how much the spotlight in the Vaudeville act must have affected oh, her eyes. Yeah. Uh, but it did. Um, And she was also diagnosed with, like, gastric problems and senility, so she's just not doing very well here at the end. And by 1935, she was fully blind. Helen wrote in a letter, For 50 years, Anne Sullivan Macy, my beloved teacher, has been the light in my life. Now she is ill, and the darkness that covers me has fallen upon her. Still the light of her love shines amid the encircling gloom, and we are happy On October 20th, 1936, Anne had a coronary thrombosis and died in Queens, with Helen holding her hand. Helen's teacher and companion of 50 years was gone. Shortly before she died, Anne dictated this message to Polly. Goodbye, John Macy. I'll soon be with you. Goodbye. I loved you. I wanted to be loved. I was lonesome. Then Helen came into my life. I wanted her to love me, and I loved her. Then later, Polly came, and I loved Polly, and we were always so happy together. My Polly, my Helen, dear children, may we all meet together in harmony. My Jimmy, I'll lay these flowers by your face. Don't take him away from me. I loved him, so he's all I've got.
5: Twelve hundred people attended Anne's funeral. She was cremated and her ashes were interred in a memorial in Washington, D.C., which is only reserved for people who made a significant contribution to the country. She was the first woman to receive this privilege on her own merits.
6: (laughs) just makes me cry because Jimmy is her brother, you know, and like, that's so sad. I mean, it makes sense that she would be thinking of him, you know, at the end of her life, but it's just sad.
5: I know, and from so long ago. Right. When they were so young. She
6: was thinking about him at the end. Yeah. Yep, I'm gonna go cry. (laughs) Let's take a commercial break. Okay.
3: Sounds good.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
2: He
5: says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed.
3: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
2: We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, A-L-L. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude.
3: You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.
4: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed the 2024 nfl schedule release presented by verizon coming in may live on nfl network espn2 and streaming on nfl plus terms and conditions apply to nfl plus visit nfl.com schedule release to learn more
0: hey this is christina quinn i'm the host of try this the washington post's new series of audio courses
5: Well, Helen and Polly, of course, were both heartbroken after Anne's death. In Helen's journal, she wrote, Most of the time, I appear to myself to be a somnambulist, impelled only by an intense faith. They decided to get back to traveling, get back to the work, doing something positive for blind people of the world. And in 1937, Helen and Polly went to Japan for the first time to help raise money for Japanese deaf and blind people. She gave 97 lectures in 35 cities and raised around $330,000.
6: She continued to publish books and essays. One of her pieces explaining her socialist politics was burned by Nazi youth, which is like, what a feather in my cap. (laughs) I'd be like, I wrote something good. (laughs) The Nazis are burning it. Uh, And she did write an open letter condemning German censorship. Mm. And she lobbied the government. She got blind people included as recipients of federal aid in the Social Security Act, including aid for diagnosis and treatment in the bill known as Title 10. And she pressured the president to authorize funds for recorded books to be made for the Library of Congress. So she got real close with FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt throughout this time. Right. And then during the war, she worked with soldiers a lot. She, that was her particular interest during the war. She would You're go on. visit hospital wards, especially of newly blind uh, soldiers. If they uh-huh. had any kind of of uh, any kind of injury, you know, that, that had caused a disability, she was particularly interested in going to visit with them and uplift them and kind of let them know that, like, life was not over. They could be just as cheerful and jolly as she was and <laughs> have a great time yeah. and be all right.
5: So after the war... Helen and Polly got back to traveling. And between 1946 and 1957, she visited 35 countries on five continents. She met Winston Churchill, Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the Mm -hmm. time, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the PM of India, and she met privately with Pope Pius XII and the Queen of England. Oh! Goodness. Hello! And then in 1948... General Douglas MacArthur sent her back to Japan as the first goodwill ambassador. I love him being <laughs> like, hey, uh, you go say something.
2: I mean, right.
5: Go, go, go make sure everything's cool, all right? <laughs>
3: Tell Helen, him I said hi.
6: Helen, listen, we just dropped two enormous bombs on these <laughs> tiny islands, so uh, we really need somebody to go over there, charm them, and just say something nice.
5: <laughs> go over there and uh, hand him this note. It says, do you like me? Check yes or no. <laughs> Are we uh, cool? Yeah. (laughs) Just try and try and smooth things over. Jeez. Well, her appearance in Japan drew a crowd of two million people. They
6: loved her in Japan.
5: Yeah. They toured the Middle East and they received an honorary degree from the only integrated university in South Africa. It's pretty cool. In nineteen fifty five, when she was seventy five years old, Helen went on her most grueling trip yet. A 40,000-mile, five-month-long tour of Asia.
6: Now, As they both got older, Polly became more and more possessive of Helen. She didn't like it when people could hold conversations with Helen without her, because then she wouldn't know exactly what was said about Mm. it, you know, everything. And Helen's friends started to worry that it would become impossible to train a replacement for Polly. Right. You know, because Anne, of course, had trained Polly. She wanted... Helen to be able to talk to both of them and Uh wanted both of them to be able to talk to her but Polly was really like proprietary about being the one the middleman between Helen's uh, you know communications and they were right to worry because in 1957 Polly had a stroke while she was in the kitchen with Helen and Helen was able to lower her to the floor so she didn't like crash to the ground or something but she had no way to call for help Mm. like it was just her and Polly and no way to call for help at all Two hours later, a neighbor noticed that the door was open. And so they, like, poked their head in to see if everything was okay. And they saw Helen sitting on the floor next to Polly. Oh, man. And finally, she got taken to a hospital. Polly did not die, but she did suffer some brain damage. Mm. And two caretakers named Winifred and Evelyn came home from the hospital with Polly to take care of Polly and of Helen. Yeah. Polly, unfortunately, never fully recovered. She passed away in March of 1960 after 46 years with Helen, which was more than half of Polly's life.
5: Wow, incredible. In 1961, Helen was 81 years old, and her health started to fail as well. She'd had a series of small strokes, and she had developed diabetes, and she began to spend her days in a wheelchair. She became too tired even to read sometimes. And she continued to receive honors and awards, but after Polly died, she never really became close to anyone again. She stopped traveling. In May of 1968, she suffered a heart attack. And a few days later, on June 1st, Helen died in her sleep. Her ashes were also interred next to her lifelong companions, Anne and Polly, in Washington, D.C.
6: I think that's sad because it kind of indicates, like, how hard it would be to become close to someone. Yeah. And, like, by the time she's in her 80s, she's like, I just don't have it anymore. Yeah, yeah,
5: totally. But that
6: makes it such a lonely last few years. Yeah. Although, apparently, Winifred and Evelyn were pretty fun-loving. They were okay. very different from Polly in that way. So, yeah. she did have some uh, good times okay, with her caretakers. And, like, obviously, we're talking about a huge legacy of Helen Keller. Right. I mean... Besides the many plays and movies and books about her life and all the work she did for people with disabilities around the world and the hundreds of essays and articles and thousands of speeches and dozen books that she wrote, and then right. honorary degrees and awards and honors and medals. <laughs> <laughs> like all her celebrity friends, like she met every president from Grover Cleveland to Lyndon Johnson
5: damn and she was that being- means she would have met Grover Cleveland on two non-consecutive occasions. <laughs>
6: I didn't think about that. Yeah. She was friends with Albert Einstein and Will Rogers. And there are museums and foundations bearing her name. She's also one of the original members of the ACLU. Oh, cool. (laughs) Her autobiography from 1903 is still in print all over the world today. Amazing. I mean, this is a legacy.
5: Right. But there's also kind of a weird piece to this legacy, Around 2020, a TikTok conspiracy started, of all places. Right. You know, the best source of information, <laughs> TikTok. Seriously? And this conspiracy said that they didn't believe Helen Keller was really disabled. I Just like people from back in the day, mm. they questioned whether someone with disabilities was capable of doing all the things Helen did, writing yeah. books and going on lecture tours. Either Helen was faking one or both of her disabilities, or someone else was really creating the work, and Helen was just the gimmick, the person they put up there in front. Gross. Pretty insulting take, honestly. Now, apparently, this post originally was started as a joke, and probably still is intended as one, but, of course, people jumped on board and started to believe it.
6: Yeah, you can't play with conspiracy theories these days, guys.
5: Even though... As a Guardian article points out, quote, "...after a stroke left him with locked-in syndrome, Jean-Dominique Bobi wrote The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by blinking his left eyelid. Naoki Higashida, who is severely autistic and has limited verbal communication skills," wrote The Reason I Jump using an alphabet grid. Donna Williams overcame shocking abuse and prejudice to produce her 1992 memoir, Nobody Nowhere. And these are just a few examples of an entire body of literature produced by disabled authors over the years. So not that anybody needed to prove it to you. But Uh, yes, there are many examples of people with disabilities doing (laughs) incredible, incredible things. Oh, uh, God, I haven't read it, but I saw the movie Diving Bell and the Butterfly, yeah. and it is something I am still terrified of to this day.
6: Oh, my God.
5: But also, like, well, if he can do it. Huh? You know, it, was it was a good movie. Was but a yeah. Remarkable it was story.
6: Surprisingly funny. But I was definitely like, if that happened to me, I feel like I'd go insane. Yeah.
5: But I was like, you know, he, he did all right. Yeah, right? For a while.
6: Maybe you could keep that in mind if it happens. I, that's be right, like, would, just think of Jean-Dominique. Absolutely.
5: If it ever happens to me, I, I, I think about it all the time. Like, right. If it ever happens to me, I just got to think of that movie.
6: Like, <laughs> this like, guy
5: wrote a whole book. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs>
6: this guy wrote a whole book. Yeah, well, and not just able-bodied people were questioning Helen Keller. Mm. Um, some people with disabilities... Really resent Helen Keller because she's always held up as this, like, saintly figure who overcame so much to do so much, you know. And because we all learn about her—because all we learn about her is her childhood and never really about the woman she became— kind of besides her long list of accomplishments, of course, you just kind of hear like Helen Keller couldn't see or talk or hear. And then Ann Sullivan came and held her hand under a water pump and suddenly it all became clear. And then she got a bunch of awards and wrote a bunch of books and did a bunch of things and then she died. Like that's sort of the Helen Keller story we know. So because of that, she's really been very diluted. Like you don't know. We don't know really the real Helen Keller. We're not getting
5: a three dimensional picture here. Exactly.
6: I mean in her lifetime she was prevented from loving someone mm-hmm. sometimes prevented from speaking out about things she cared about because yeah. she was meant to be this inspirational example to everybody and uh, you know she'd been a celebrity since she was 8 years old so oh, like That'll take
5: a toll on anybody. That's insane. Yeah. yeah, it's
6: crazy. And in death she's still depicted mostly as a prepubescent girl at a water pump so like you know, even with all the accomplishments that she made after that, yeah. that's the image that is like drawn, you know, drilled into our brain about her.
5: But Helen Keller was a really accomplished person. I mean, even without disabilities, writing a dozen books and contributing to multiple magazines and going on years long lecture tours across the globe is incredible. I
6: mean, for real. Right. <laughs> Please let me do half of that. in my life.
5: <laughs> but she wasn't a saint. She was a human woman. She was someone who fell in love with this handsome journalist and wanted to run away with him. Mm-hmm. She liked to go out and get a hot dog from the stand on the corner or drink a few martinis before bed. She loved a good joke. She had a calm, cheerful outlook on life. She was just a lady. She was yeah. just a cool lady.
6: Mm-hmm. And she had a lot of really strong opinions yeah. that a lot of people in power really didn't want you to read about. Right. <laughs> so they were like, eh, let's forget that part. <laughs> Her 1968 New York Times obituary sums it up well. Tall, handsome, gracious, poised, Miss Keller has a sparkling humor and a warm hand clasp that won her friends easily. She exuded vitality and optimism. My life has been happy because I have had wonderful friends and plenty of interesting work to do, she once remarked, adding, I seldom think about my limitations and they never make me sad. Perhaps there is just a touch of yearning at times, but it is vague, like a breeze among flowers. The wind passes, and the flowers are content.
5: I tell you, just a wordsmith.
6: I know, right? And I just think it's important to know how deeply she loved yeah. people and how, I don't know, she's just not, not what, uh, what I knew about. Right. You know, again, I read about an eight-year-old and that was it. Right. But I have to be gross. Like if I can be gross for a minute, sure, i yeah, speculation that's station. That's what it's all about
5: here on Ridiculous Romance.
6: Do you think that Helen and Peter ever had sex? Oh. Because, I mean, she was in her mid-30s by this time. They were alone. I'm not
5: sure. I mean, why not? They did
6: something?
0: Come
5: on. They must have done something, right?
6: I kind of hope they did. Right? If it was like her one love affair, I feel like I'm like, I hope she went all the way with it.
5: <laughs> maybe.
6: But Maybe they just did hand stuff.
5: Hey, oh my god. Oh my god. I can't <laughs> oh believe no! you just said that. Oh no. <laughs> hand stuff. <laughs> oh man. Look, we know they did hand I'm stuff. Gonna
2: leave. <laughs> but
5: yeah, you should leave. We should leave. I'm jumping right to the email address after that one.
6: <laughs> Fuck.
5: We've said enough.
6: I'm sorry.
5: Cancelled. Look, if you wanna um, if you wanna Really give Diana
3: What for? stern
5: talking to. Then you can send us an email at romance at iheartmedia.com.
6: <laughs> or or <laughs> slide into my DMs, I guess. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram at dietamite Boom.
5: And I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. And just remember who said it.
6: <laughs> and the show is at Romance. If you want to tag us in a hate post, <laughs> please don't. I didn't um, mean it like that. <laughs> I
5: know you didn't, but it was—it was it came funny out. <laughs>
6: yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good.
5: It's pretty good. It's pretty. Uh, funny. We're so happy to have you as always.
6: And I hope that you enjoyed this episode about Helen Keller and Peter Fagan, and yeah. and may hopefully learned something about people with disabilities. Right, <laughs> I, I certainly did.
5: Right, and what how they're perceived, and what, right. what you know, what that's like going through. I mean, and still today
6: they have a hard time getting married especially to each other because of the way the benefits work and disability benefits and so they're they're still fighting for marriage equality this seems like an old old timey thing but it's it's happening right now
5: yeah Well, we hope to hear from you soon, Mm -hmm. and uh, we will definitely be here for the next episode, because if we weren't, there wouldn't be one. There wouldn't be one. (laughs) But we'll look forward to seeing you then.
6: Thank you so much for tuning in, as always, and we'll see you next time. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.
4: From BBC Radio 4.